Chris Campbell, Senior Content Manager with the Food Institute, and welcome back to the Food Institute podcast. This week, we'll be speaking with Riley Lagason, who works for Greenberg Traurig, and we're going to be taking a look at California's Fast Recovery Act and how it could impact restaurants in California, but also in the rest of the nation. But before we get started, I did want to take a moment to remind everybody that the Food Institute podcast has its own LinkedIn. I know we're coming out of our summer slumber here on the podcast, but you could always follow us there to find out the latest updates. And we have a ton of new episodes scheduled for the next weeks and months, so make sure you follow us there. So with that all out of the way, I welcome Riley to the show, and I was hoping you could share a little bit about your career background to give people a better idea of your vantage point of the food industry. Yeah, well, I chair the Global Restaurant Industry Group at the Greenberg Troy Law Firm. And I have been uh, in the restaurant space in one way or another for almost 30 years. I went to uh, film school at the University of Southern California, and uh, I joke that it put me directly into the restaurant business upon graduation. So after graduating, I uh, lived in Manhattan Beach, where I had the good fortune to work as a restaurant employee and uh, server and for minimum wage for a number of years uh, while I was pursuing a career in entertainment. <laughs> and I was much, I think, more successful as a restaurant employee. I, I did every job in the book for many years at a place called Baja Sharky's and then uh, left Sharky's to uh, open a fast casual restaurant concept with a partner of mine. And so we grew that to a few locations in Los Angeles before I decided to go to law school to start a practice uh, helping restaurateurs uh, grow and, and, and navigate all the various issues that they face uh, on a, a regular basis. And one of those, obviously, the, the policies uh, and legislation that impacts them, but also financing and, and uh, development, employment, real estate, IP, and our team here at Greenberg Traurig, uh, probably one of the more comprehensive groups in the country uh, in helping restaurants uh, deal with these issues and helping to stay uh, ahead of the curve, hopefully, on uh, items like the FAST Act and other things that have a, a real impact. Uh, so uh, love the restaurant space, uh, really uh, you know, love being a restaurant em employee, uh, learn more from that, I think, than any uh, thing I ever learned in, in high school or college or, or law school for that matter. So <laughs> you know, it's a real passion for the industry and, and really caring about the business. And that's uh, what I love to do, love working with our team, love, love working with, with restaurant clients and love hopefully keeping the industry open for jobs uh, for all, because that's one thing that the restaurant industry does provide. It's a path to jobs and job opportunities for everybody. And legislation like the FAST Act certainly have an impact on that and not necessarily in a good way. So I love the passion and I love the fact that you kind of have this dual background, right? You have the legal background, obviously, uh, as part of your current career. But I think that you're in a really interesting position considering you do have, you know, the entrepreneurial side, you have, you know, the lower level employee side of the restaurant industry kind of under wraps here. So I think this kind of goes right into the first question. I think we really got to just talk about the Fast Recovery Act. I know people have probably heard a little bit about this or seen news reports, but could you give us a general overview of what this new law means for restaurant operators in California? Yeah, and the FAST Act, it's been well covered in, in the media for some time. It's a bill that was first introduced in January of, of 2021. Uh, it didn't get a lot of traction then, but it, but it came back uh, earlier this year and obviously uh, was passed and signed by the governor about a week or so ago. Uh, the FAST Act, I think it's important for uh, your listeners to understand uh, and to keep things in context that this is part of a, a strategy uh, led by uh, the unions to essentially unionize the restaurant industry, not just in 
California, but around the nation. And so as you see legislation like this, you're also seeing a lot of press on the unionization of, of restaurants in various states around the country that's been picking up momentum uh, conservatively for you know almost the entire year. So you look at the first Starbucks that uh, unionized in Buffalo, New York in December of uh, 2021. Currently, there's over 200 Starbucks that have uh, where workers have voted to unionize at, at those locations. And there's a lot of other examples going on in that department. What we see with the, the FAST Act is a piece of legislation that was originally crafted to do two things. One, uh, form a, a council that would regulate uh, restaurants in California that was comprised primarily and almost exclusively initially of uh, really you know, pro-labor uh, uh, folks and with little representation of the industry. Originally, it was an, an 11-person council. Uh, I think nine of those were uh, pro-labor uh, and, and two were from the industry. Ended up with uh, a 10-person council, essentially a six to four labor versus industry with some notable emissions from the industry we could uh, touch, uh, touch on later. Uh, but also, it was an act that had another major component that did not make it into uh, the final legislation, which was to impose a joint employer liability on franchisors. And so it would have made franchisors uh, responsible for any labor code violations uh, by franchisees in California, which was something that was virtually unprecedented and, and uh heavily opposed for obvious reasons by uh, the industry uh, because it would have been extremely costly and uh, difficult to even justify doing business in California under those circumstances. So with the amendments that came in at the end of August, uh, uh, that provision was removed. And then, as we all know, the governor signed it into law on Labor Day, after which a referendum was filed on September 7th uh, to uh, present this to the voters. And so now uh, the proponents of the referendum are in the process of collecting signatures. If they collect enough signatures to get it on the ballot, uh, this would be decided by the voters in November of 2024. Until then, uh, this law cannot go into effect. However, if they do not collect enough signatures uh, within the right period of time, um, you know, this could go into effect, I believe, as early as January of 2023. So we're kind of in a wait and see mode at the, at the moment. And just to follow up, I just want to make sure we're talking about the right aspect of the industry, you know, in California. So is this law intended to kind of overlook independence chains or both? How does this kind of affect restaurants depending on scale and size in California? Well, I think that's a, that's a really good question. I think a lot of the media and a lot of the attention has been uh, operating under the assumption that this only applies to what are uh, called quote unquote fast food restaurants. And that is not the case, nor has it ever been the case with this legislation. So the way it's been pitched uh, by the proponents of it is that this is to regulate uh, wage and hour conditions and health, safety, and welfare for what people would traditionally look at as uh, fast food restaurants. And they've, they've been targeting and at least associating this with you know, the big players, the usual suspects with large national franchised restaurant chains. 
but the face of the legislation, the language has always been far broader than that. So even the earlier drafts would have covered a wide variety of, of counter service restaurants and non-franchise restaurants uh, that uh, are you know, it, operating in California. The original draft said 30 locations nationally. If you had one in California, 29 elsewhere, you would be covered by this act. It ultimately signed, it's 100 locations. As long as you have one in California, 100 nationally, uh, it, it will apply. But the definition of fast food restaurant in the act is expansive. So essentially it applies to almost every counter service restaurant in the state of California. So if you go in, you pay before you eat, uh, and the food is essentially ready to be prepared, it's not prepared scratch made to order, uh, you're essentially covered by this act as long as you meet the location number. But what's interesting and what came in and uh, the amendment was the ability of the council to raise the minimum wage in 2023 to $22 an hour. And so this council has been granted uh, some level of authority to raise uh, the minimum wage. And uh, this type of provision, as expected, uh, would affect the entire industry. And so going back to point the earlier uh, part of the conversation, it's really important to keep the overall and overarching goal in mind here. This is uh, an effort by the unions to have a dramatic impact on the face of labor uh, in at restaurants nationally and also to other industries, but focusing on the restaurant industry as an entry point, uh, which they have for a number of years to get restaurants to unionize. And you see in the legislation itself, there are certain exemptions uh, which would make this act non-applicable to restaurants. And one is if the restaurant is subject to a collective bargaining agreement. So if the restaurant is unionized, the act doesn't apply, hence, kind of the motivation of the unions to be promoting this legislation. So in a little bit, I'd like to jump back into how it could affect multi-state operators. I appreciate kind of the background there too, but I do think, you know, this minimum wage is worth talking about. Media reports are saying that it's going to jump up to 22. I believe minimum wage right now is around 16 in California. And I could be wrong on that, but, you know, is that $22 an hour rate, like, uh, sorry, wage rate, like realistic? Is it really going to land at 22? Is this something that's going to be a little bit more, you know, in between those two numbers? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, it's that's uh, whatever on everybody's mind at the moment. <laughs> Personally, I, I don't know. Um, I really, really don't. When you have the council that's now comprised, you know, it's got a little better representation uh, from industry and you have the governor's office more involved, uh, a little more oversight, a little more, I think, maybe uh, you know, business judgment, common sense at the table in connection with the council. Uh, but still, uh, as proposed, it's still, and has passed, it's still you know, heavy you know, pro-labor um, is you know, essentially on, on a six to four vote. Uh, so it's hard to say. Um, you know, I think one, one thing you know, that we've all seen nationally is inflation uh, is a real problem. Inflation is pushing food prices uh, to uh, you know, unseen numbers. Inflation is pushing wages and, and other folks into uh, you know, uncharted territory. Uh, the pandemic uh, by itself created uh, a labor shortage uh, within the, the restaurant space and other industries that 
you know, by necessity, restaurants uh, in uh, in large part have been paying more than they ever have on an hourly wage and with benefits and, and other things for, for employees. So a lot of this comes down to kind of a, a real math question with uh, the restaurants that you know almost universally operate on fairly limited margins. If you push wage uh, up to this type of level and prices need to be uh, increased uh, commensurately to accommodate this, while we're dealing in the backdrop of inflation and increasing food costs, supply chain issues, and a whole host of other things that are impacting this industry, uh, it's going to create a lot of problems and probably a lot of restaurant and job carnage uh, that I think everybody would like to avoid. But if if you look at the math and you extrapolate that into kind of some real life scenarios, it doesn't look good for employees, uh, customers, or or entrepreneurs. So long way of saying, hard to say, uh, this legislation is you know, so, uh, I would say, out there by itself <laughs> that, uh, you know, and, and the folks, you know, that are supporting this type of legislation really aren't necessarily thinking about uh, uh, common sense and business and, you know, the impact it really has. They don't, they're not exactly uh, that concerned about it from what we've seen. They care about uh really keeping kind of the unions uh, well-funded and, and driving membership and so forth uh, and not necessarily, you know, looking to support the jobs that they're professing uh, to try to support and save. So uh, we're living in a crazy world, uh, that that's for sure. And so it'll, you know, obviously be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, and I think that's part of it, right? We're taking a look at some legislation that in a lot of ways is kind of unprecedented. So it's hard to tell what's going to happen, especially, you know, we don't even know where that wage is going to land and how that impacts it. But, you know, assuming it lands up in that higher part of that range, you know, somewhere in the 20 to $22 an hour range, you know, you said that you could see prices going up. How else do you think restaurants would react to this? Do you think they'll deploy more automated solutions? Do you think that they're going to just utilize fewer workers? How do you see that kind of playing out? I see it playing out similarly to how we've seen things play out in the cities that have dramatically increased wages and benefits over the last several years, due in large part to the Fight for 15 initiative and and related initiatives that started around 2012. So a number of uh, cities dramatically increased wages in response to that. Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, New York. other cities have somewhat followed suit over time around the country, but the cities where you have had you know, these dramatic wage increases and what the FAST Act proposed, if it goes to $22 an hour or anywhere close to that, what we're going to see um, is more of what we've seen in, in response to these pressures that have been around for several years, and that is decrease of, of jobs, uh, more uh, you know, automation, and uh, technology taking the place of uh, roles that were previously provided by people. Uh, we're going to see much higher, I think, instances of, of you know, foreclosed job opportunities, especially for the lower end of the workforce and in entry level by virtue of these businesses not being able to afford or, or wanting to hire people uh, because uh, their profitability depends upon uh, minimization of, of, of human labor. And we're going to see a, you know, an escalation of prices to whatever they need to be to offset 
any any cost increases. Um, and we're also going to see a lot of businesses likely close. Uh, I would say the, the uh, increased wages over the last several years in some of the cities I mentioned uh, have had just as much or more of an impact on the smaller independents uh, and you know the the more kind of non-fast food restaurants than the fast food restaurants for you know some fairly obvious reasons. Uh, fast food uh, is able to adapt to changes uh, easier in a lot of ways, especially with the products they sell. Uh, they have uh, can can use and engineer uh, food in, in different ways to keep prices down. They have relationships with significant manufacturers and suppliers to keep prices down. They have uh, substantial advertising and marketing programs and, and so forth. And a lot of things that the independents and other groups do not have, you know, so if you're, if you're actually using freshly prepared food product um, and you're using real people to prepare it, which a lot of restaurants still do, believe it or not, uh, it's a lot more expensive. And if that's your model, you can't change it. And so when the, the costs go up, it, it goes up to the point where it needs to be passed along to the customer and everything just gets a lot more expensive. That's not a good thing for the country. It's not certainly good for human health or any, anybody that wants to, you know, enjoy, you know, real uh, freshly prepared foods and, and so forth. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of unspoken impacts of this that are not necessarily part of the conversation front and center that are very important to the, you know, the current state of this country, but, but more so the future. And, uh, you know, hoping that some of this common sense, you know, comes into play as, as this legislation works its way through the path. But uh, the job situation in, the, in this country, the number of people out, out of work, the number that have not returned to the workforce, you know, the, the state of, you know, uh, you know America's health, uh, you know, is such, you know, uh, a condition that legislation like the FAST Act uh, is not going to help things. And we really should be looking at things from a, a very different perspective than we currently are, in my personal opinion. So I know we talked a lot about how this fast food council would have, you know, broad authority to kind of set that minimum wage. Are there any other important authorities that they would have under this law? There's there's a lot of uh, discretion around workplace standards and, and safety related issues. Uh, and so there, those are to be determined. As far as wages concerned, at least as I understand it, there are some limitations on you know, how they can actually set wage because the legislation itself provides for a window of time in 2023 to raise wages to up to $22 an hour. And then thereafter, the next several years, uh, maximum of three and a half percent wage increases. So the way we interpret this language is that you know, for wage increases beyond that, those would need to be authorized by the legislature. Uh, so essentially, there's there's a, a lot of, uh, of uh, work to be done by these councils around uh, workplace, you know, and, and um, you know, safety issues and, and health and welfare type issues within the workplace. But uh, the wage uh, uh, related matters, as we say, are somewhat contained by the legislation. So I'd like to pull out a little bit here. I know we've been talking about how this is going to affect California, obviously, since it's a California law. But I'm wondering, 
you know, in your conversations with other people in the industry, are you seeing this as almost like a template for other states to take a look at? Do you think other states are going to try something similar to this kind of council, or do you think this is going to be somewhat isolated to California for now? We think this is not isolated to California because the proponents of it have actually said that <laughs> they're not they're not planning to to keep this in, in California. Yeah, this is California is an awesome test market for them because you know it's it's got the right kind of you know sentiments politically and and what have you to you know push something like this through and and you can really work get a lot of folks worked up you know when you're targeting kind of the we see as the easier target in quote unquote traditional fast food, uh, which historically has been known for not having the best labor practices. And, you know, obviously there's been a lot of efforts over the years by many, many groups to improve that, but there's still an e easy candidate for, for folks to, to uh, criticize and, and uh, you know, voice complaints about and rally uh, workers who've had not the best experiences and so forth and, and generate a lot of public sentiment behind that. And so, you know, that that's understood. And the proponents of this have done a very effective job at uh, you know, rallying people around this, you know, to uh, get this piece of legislation passed. They've also been very effective at the unionization campaigns because being a restaurant worker for in the pandemic, you know, as somebody who worked for minimum wage myself in the restaurant industry for years and uh, know how difficult it can be to be working long, grueling shifts uh, without adequate support and people, uh, you know, and, the, and the, the lack, the labor shortage the last couple of years have been unprecedented. And so these workers are obviously, uh, you know, working their, their backs off to, you know, uh, help their companies and provide to customers and so forth. And so the sentiments that are being kind of portrayed right now are completely understandable. What's important to do is though, look at it into the context of what is actually going on here and for restaurant workers to really, you know, get treated the best and to, uh, you know, have the opportunities to keep the doors open. You know, it's probably not something like the fast actor unionization that's going to going to get to that point because um, for the reasons talked about earlier, if costs get too high uh, and things get too complicated on the regulatory side, business is going to adapt these jobs. A lot of them are going to go away. The cost to customers is going to become, you know, uh, exorbitantly high and un untenable and business is going to find other ways to have to go about, you know, doing, doing their work and surviving. And also the gap between the haves and have nots in the food world for those that are able to afford access to better high quality food, that, that gap is, is going to be more massive than it already is. And uh, so we see this as, as part of a strategy because it's a professed strategy to uh, change the face of the labor landscape by the proponents of uh, unionization efforts and, and the FAST Act and so forth. So it's, it's uh, part of a very long-term and well-thought-out, well-executed strategy by the groups behind it. Um, and so it's, it's not isolated California. This will be popping up most likely in a lot of other places, especially, you know, if, if uh, you know, the number of voters is, that signatures are not obtained to get this on the referendum. If this goes into effect within the next few months, you know, we'll, we'll probably see more accelerated activity. So, yeah, let's assume that this does go into effect in the next couple of months. You know, we we're talking a little bit about those multi-state operators earlier. And so, you know, 100 locations, if they have one in California, 
I could see them shutting down that location in California. That's kind of what I'm seeing. And I think we've kind of seen that as well with some of the stores that have been unionized in markets that are not performing very well. Is that one of the things you think you'll see for that kind of situation where it's a, you know, multi-state operator with a small footprint in California? Do you think that's a threat that they'll just leave the state instead of having to work under these conditions? I think it's a possibility. I think it's really operator dependent and how significant their business is in California. Now, a lot of these are, you know, the multi uh unit operators it's you know are you company owned or are you franchise if you're a franchisee um probably not going to want to shut down your business necessarily uh you're probably going to want to find a way to to stay in business the franchisor is not going to have the unilateral authority to to shut you down if you're company owned and operating in california and it's too expensive well then yes they might close shop uh and and move on uh but what i i can say is that you know, throughout the pendency of this legislation, we have a number of our clients that are, you know, operating in California or uh, potentially planning to operate in California to potentially franchise to a number of groups in California. And they have all said that, you know, this act is of a concern to them that by and large is going to reduce or stop development in the state of California if this is implemented, um, at least for some time being. Uh, and you know, the, the sometime being asterisk, meaning if this legislation spreads, you know, to a bunch of other cities or states around the country and so forth, it's you know, very similar to the increased wages uh, that we've seen in a lot of other cities and states, you know, where folks back then said they were going to stop development in some of those places. Some of them have, some of them have just curtailed development, uh, and some of them still are developing because, you know, uh, the restaurant industry is not going to go away. It's just going to change and it's going to evolve uh, to meet you know, the needs of uh, you know, business and, and to you know, be able to continue to serve and to employ to, uh, you know, a degree that is manageable under the economic circumstances. And so you know, we're at a very critical, pivotal time. Uh, it's pretty much unprecedented what we're seeing from both the unionization activity and legislation like the FAST Act, but it all needs to be looked at from you know the, the broad picture at what's going on here and the, the country and industry yeah, and those behind the, this type of legislation really you know, will hopefully you know, say, what is it that we really want to achieve here? You know, is, the, is the goal to you know, uh, force people out of jobs and to make food more expensive and, and already you know, unprecedented expensive and, and difficult time or are there other ways to go about uh you know giving workers uh the wages and, and benefits that they rightfully deserve but also to maintain a balance of, of business and growth that you know is, is really healthy for this country and so hopefully that's where the perspective and focus is i certainly don't count on that given everything <laughs> we've seen all these years but the more that message can, can get through to folks uh certainly the better because there is there is a way economically you know, in the restaurant business to provide good and, and food, good food and good jobs uh, simultaneously. They're not mutually exclusive. There's plenty of companies that do it and have been doing it for years. And, and there really is hopefully a good path forward here for everybody. So I just have one last question for you, Riley, and it's going to be another assumption that, you know, I know this is going to the voters in California. If they do approve this, is there any other legal recourse restaurant operators are going to have to reverse the law? Is there anything they'll be able to do or is this going to be set in stone if it goes through, uh, you know, the proposition process and actually is approved? Yeah, if the voters uh, you know, decide or if, or if this 
the referendum does not get on the on the ballot and this goes into law there are some other potential challenges uh, challenges on constitutional grounds that I've talked about or what have you, an unauthorized delegation of power to an ele unelected body and the formation of these councils. So there's been some ideas that have been kicked around. Uh, so, you know, I think we'll have to wait and see how this uh, referendum, you know, ballot signature process goes. But I can say you know, all eyes are going to be on, on California and this, as well as other parts of the country where we might see this popping up uh you know in the not so distant future so i would say this is a, a very unique time and a very important time you know in the restaurant space for uh, employees customers and and entrepreneurs and you know hopefully everything gets in a place to keep you know the industry alive and healthy for all involved so that's that's the ultimate goal here from you know personally and what our what our our group does uh you know in, in really trying to you know, support all three of the critical elements, the industry employees, uh, customers and, and business, and hopefully the, the people, you know, on both sides of the aisle and, you know, on this type of legislation will, you know, uh, you know, take that type of message to heart at some point. Although not <laughs> said earlier, not, not confident that's going to be the case. These are pitch battles. Everybody's digging in pretty hard. And, and, uh, but I think the bright spots are the, you know, thousands of, of great restaurateurs out there and, and their employees and teams that despite all of this uh, craziness, you know, continue to do amazing things every single day for, for customers and for employees and, and for business. So it sounds like we're going to have to have you back on in a couple months, Riley, to talk after we find out the results of the referendum. But I do want to say, you know, thank you for spending some time with us today, kind of elucidate, elucidating the FAST Act and giving our listeners a better idea of what's really involved here. So just wanted to offer my thanks again. Well, my pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much for including me. Really appreciate it. So that's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn. Until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. Mm -hmm.